Hello, everyone. My name is OJ Tucker, host of the OJ Tucker podcast, the only comedy tennis podcast that talks about a political and societal culture as a whole. My name is OJ Tucker, as the name would suggest. Happy Tuesday. Hopefully, you guys are enjoying your weekend, spending time with your family, your friends, watching the boss open or the strike guard open, as it's rather known as the final that transpired on Sunday. There's a little bit of news that we can get into for today. In terms of news outside of tennis world, we can discuss Matt Walsh's What is a Woman documentary the backlash that has been occurring on Twitter and other social media sites, as well as the support that has been seen on the right because of this documentary on trans women. We can discuss also Tiger Woods becoming a billionaire and the live tour that has been happening with Saudi Arabia and how he turned down money for that, yet still became a billionaire, which is some baller stuff happening, baller shit happening with Tiger Woods. We can also discuss Bill Maher blaming gun movies on gun violence and his overall remarks that happened on Real Time with Bill Maher that happened on Friday. And we can end with my wiki pick, which is each and every week I recommend a book, a piece of art, a film that I really enjoy that I think you guys will enjoy as well. And this week I'll be recommending a film. So that's a little bit of 10 bit, but if you're watching on YouTube and if you've seen the description box below, you probably already know what the weekly pick is, but I'll tell it to you later as to what my weekly pick will be. But where I'll start off today will be some tennis related news. So if you guys didn't watch the Stuttgart Open, I don't blame you if you haven't. I'm not going to lie. I didn't, I didn't really watch it either. But I'm still going to recap it for you guys because I did watch the highlights and I did watch parts of that second and third set. So if you guys don't know what happened on Sunday for the Stuttgart Open Final, Matteo Berrettini beat Andy Murray 6-4, 5-7, 6-3. And this lasted for three sets, and I really enjoyed this match uh, the, for the limited amount of time that I was able to watch this match. This match was really interesting because... You have Matteo Berrettini, who reached the Wimbledon final last year, try and come back from his injury. And obviously, we know that he's been having injuries uh, for quite some time now. I mean, he was out for most of the clay season because of set injuries. And to see him come back for this grass season and do so in a way that is a win over a big four member, I think that is a positive stride in the positive direction. And I, for one, am excited to see what's next for Matteo Berrettini. But in, in this match, Matteo Berrettini did well against Andy Murray. It wasn't a very clean win, obviously. Andy Murray did get the second set. But overall, this was a pretty, pretty good match for Matteo Berrettini. He did well in aces. He he had, I think, nine aces in this match. Nine aces, I would say. If it's 19, then I'm way off. But I think it's nine aces in this match for three sets. So that's pretty stellar. Uh, honestly, Matteo Berrettini, when you have a person like Matteo Berrettini, a person that's a little bit taller on the taller side of things, has a big serve and has very sort of big delivery on the forehands and backhands. That's sort of tailor-made for grass. And when, when you add in serve and volley to the mix, then you're basically dealing with a grass court player. And I feel like Matteo Berrettini has proven himself to be a grass court player. And I think that Wimbledon final last year really shows that as well. So Matteo Berrettini doing well for the grass season. That's to be expected. I think I discussed that in my previous episode, episode 144, where I discuss, or one episode 143, I should say, where I discuss who I believe will do well at Wimbledon. And I said Felix Ogier-Asim and Matteo Berrettini. I think those two individuals, in my opinion, are going to reach the final eight, if not the final four, if they're not in the same rankings, if they're not in the same seating. So I think this win is a step in the right direction for Matteo Berrettini. It's going to be interesting to see what's going to happen 
in the next few matches to come and in the next few tournaments to come because we do have the Queen's Club Championships, but also the Hall Open. And they're running at the same time. Actually, they're running right now, if I'm not mistaken. So they're running at the same time. It's going to be interesting to see how Matteo Berrettini is going to sort of deliver for those ATP 250, ATP 500 tournaments. And I, for one, am excited. I really am. I'm excited to see what's going to happen for Matteo Berrettini. In that first set, Matteo Berrettini did really well in terms of delivering on serve, getting up to the net more often than not, being able to not allow Andy Murray to hit great passing shots, which we have, we've been seeing of Andy Murray as of late. And that was a really, really good first set for Matteo Berrettini. Obviously, things did, definitely did change that second set. Uh, he did, definitely did make more unforced errors. He wasn't really able to commit himself in long rallies. But in that third set, again, it was more or less the same as that first set. And Matteo Berrettini did what did what Matteo Berrettini did well, which is doing great volleys, being able to close out the net, being able to add pressure and add more importantly pace to the ball. And I think that third set was more or less the same as what we got in that first set. Um, for Andy Murray, and I feel like I sort of discussed Matteo Berrettini. So let's switch over to Andy Murray for just a second. I feel like Andy Murray, there were some issues with his hip. I felt like I felt like that because at one point during a changeover, he called a physio over and he was just working on his hip. And I felt like okay, this is a telltale sign that he's not fully healthy for this match, and I feel like if he's going to lose, that's probably a good reason why. Obviously, there are other reasons as well. Obviously, you know he did make a lot of unforced errors. Uh, his serving his serve game was not that great, um, in my opinion. So. Honestly, I, I do think that Andy Murray, and when you think of Andy Murray in this match, you think of, okay, this man, even though he has had stellar wins in the Stuttgart Open with wins such as over Nikirios and that of Stefano Tsitsipas, he's still an individual that does make mistakes. And I felt like this match shows you that he still does have injuries, lingering injuries. Again, this is a man that has had two hip surgeries in the past four or five years. So again, I think it's very, very important to sort of understand that because... You know, we're not dealing with an Andy Murray back in 2016, right? We're not dealing with an Andy Murray back in 2012, 2013. We're dealing with an Andy Murray that has had some injuries to him, that has been through the thick of it, and who is getting older and isn't really as sort of attentive with the ball or really that agile around the court as we saw in the past few years. So I think that's very, very important to sort of understand heading into that into this Wimbledon, this year's Wimbledon. And that's sort of my overall thoughts and opinions on this sort of match with Matteo Bertini and Andy Murray. Having said all that, I still think that Andy Murray has a better chance of reaching the Wimbledon final more so than, say, the rest of the ATP. Obviously, there are exceptions. I mean, obviously, FAA, Bertini, I would even include Carlos Alcaraz in that mix, Novak Djokovic, Rafa Nadal. But I wouldn't be surprised if we saw... Andy Murray in the quarterfinals. I honestly wouldn't. At this point, like anything can happen in tennis. I really do think so. I mean, you know, Nick Kyrgios, I think he's good, but I don't think he's going to reach even the top 16 or top 30, like top 16. I don't think he's going to reach round four. I mean, I think he's a good player, but I just don't think he has the mental wit to stand the test of time or to stand through all those matches to reach the fourth round. I mean, there are other movies. I mean, there are other players. Why did I say movies? I think... I was like looking at the next topic, my bad. But there are other like players where I think they too can do well, but not reach the final eight. And I think Andy Murray 
because of, ex- of his experience, because of his success on grass, I do think that he has the ability to reach the final eight. I really do. And I know it's wishful thinking on my part, and maybe this is coming from a person that grew up watching Annie Murray play on final Sunday. And this is a man that, you know, basically spent his childhood just like idolizing Annie Murray. But again, I do think that Annie Murray, even with all the hip surgeries, even with all the setbacks, I do think that Andy Murray has the ability to reach that final eight because at the end of the day, experience matters. You know, like at the end of the day, having that experience triumphs and trumps youth and exuberance. More often than not, I really do believe so. You know, I mean, you've seen that with Novak Djokovic when he plays against when he played against Berrettini at the Wimbledon final and sits spots at the French Open final. You saw that with this past year with Rafa Nadal beating Casper in straight sets. I do think that age and experience triumphs and trumps that of youth and exuberance and i feel like those individuals more often than not do have a tactical advantage over the more young bucks on the atp tour and i think that's a very very important thing to at least admit and to acknowledge and that's not just in like tennis right like as a stand-up comedian doing stand-up comedy as i do you know hearing a person's opinions as an older individual you hear you sort of take that more in a more comedic way, in a more sort of understanding way than hearing some 20-something-year-old kid talk about his opinions on the world or on neoliberalism or whatnot. You know, I feel like people more generally than not sort of take into the opinions of, say, a person that is more older than somebody that's more younger. And that's no fault on the younger individual. That It just shows that, you know, you're often taking more sort of, I wouldn't just say seriously, but more credibly as an older person. I know I'm, I'm sort of getting all over the place and, you know, I'm sorry, this is the Stuttgart Open. This is not the French Open or the Indian Wells or Miami Open or the Paris Relux Masters. It's it's a ATB 250 event, all right? So it just know that, you know, it's it's not that, you know, important here. But again, it's still a tennis match. You know, to see Matteo Bertini do well is great. I'm happy for him. Um, I'm excited to see what's next for him in the grass season. I really am because I do think that he has the ability to reach the Wimbledon final again. I really do. I think he has the ability to. I think this field is so devoid of any sort of real sort of parity where at the end of the day, like because of the fact that Russian and Belarusian players are absent this Grand Slam, I do think that it opens the door for more sort of lesser experienced players. And I wouldn't put Berrettini in the list, but I do think it opens the door for individuals that have been doing well to now sort of deliver and to step up now that Rublev and Medvedev are absent for this tour. Now, do I think Rublev is a grass court player? I don't think so. I mean, I've seen his results on grass. It doesn't seem like he's a grass court player. Do I think Medvedev is a grass court player? It doesn't really seem like that. I don't feel like their styles are really adept to the grass court game. I don't feel like their styles are really tailor-made for that grass court play. But I do think that because of the fact that they are absent, I think that this now opens the door for those individuals that have been doing well recently to now step up. And I feel like Berrettini and FAA are two of the most recent examples of individuals who have been doing well recently now trying to step up and trying to win that trophy on final Sunday. I don't think they will be successful in that. I still think it's Nadal, Djokovic as my 1A, 1B sort of sort of situation. But I do think that 
because of the fact that we are seeing the absence of Russian and Belarusian players, I think that now, that now opens the door for FAA and for Berrettini to deliver. And I feel like that's very, very important to at least to make and to acknowledge. Again, uh, that's it for the tennis news and tennis-related discussions for this podcast. I'll, obviously, it's the grass season, so it's a little bit difficult to discuss tennis during the grass season before Wimbledon because you're just basically dealing with a bunch of ATP 250 and ATP 500 events, which is great. You know, I'm not going to lie. It's very, very important to discuss it and to talk about it. But again, you know, this sort of month before Wimbledon is sort of a breather, I would say. I think this month is a very sort of, all right, just take it easy. You know, before we get into Wimbledon, before we get into the Rogers Cup, and before we get into the Western Southern Open and the U.S. Open, just get a little bit of a breather, you know, obviously make your predictions and just take it in stride because, you know, these next few months are going to be very, very hectic in the tennis world. So I feel like this month leading up to Wimbledon, I feel like it's the ATP's way of saying, okay, just chill. You know, we, we gave you, you know, we gave you the Italian Open, we gave you the Madrid Open, we gave you Monte Carlo, we gave you the French Open, we gave you Indian Wells, the Miami Open. Right now, just chill. Just chill, just enjoy. I feel like that this is the ATV's message for this month. You know, I feel like that's sort of how I'm going to treat it as well. All right, so that's it for the tennis news for today. Uh, in news outside of the tennis world, let's get into our first bit of news. I sort of gave it de- uh, into. Uh, I sort of gave you what I was going to discuss about it on the rundown, but let me just sort of expand on that. So Bill Maher blames gun movies on gun violence. So this is from Deadline. So Bill Maher turns his real-time guns on Hollywood's action movies as a root cause of violence, which is very, very weird to say the least. I thought Bill Maher would be a little bit more nuanced than just having that sort of opinion. But all right, let's let's hear him out. Uh, Hollywood loves extolling vengeance, as noted by the dozens of films with that word in the title, because no impressionable young male would ever intimidate that. Mar said sarcastically. He pointed out that on a pie chart de- detailing the causes of mass shootings, issues such as mental health, easy access to guns, social media, cr- creating envy and anger, there's a lot of consideration of crazy amounts of gun violence in movies and TV. You're telling me these cool dudes don't influence them? Guns are presented over and over again as the best solution to life's problems. They call them action movies, said Mar. They should call them revenge movies. Getting revenge on them that wrong getting revenge on them that wronged you is the theme of most action movies which are made for and loved by young men the trope of a nice guy who is pulled too far just doesn't create a culture of violence mark contended it creates a culture of justified violence mar said hollywood largely condemned the actions of wisconsin vigilante calvin house but then they endlessly produced movies with that exact plot mar said while allowing that he's not in, fa- in favor of censorship or organizing society around what crazy people might do, Mar noted, every bad thought in all these movies is how to get revenge. All right, this is a lot of crock, I would say, by by Bill Maher. Listen, I have my opinions of Bill Maher. I think Bill Maher has some opinions that I sort of agree with. I mean, he does go hard on liberals for, like, you know, the culture war kind of nonsense and sort of, you know, deluding people on the right with what they're saying. So I understand what he's coming from on that end. But again, like, this is so dumb. I I think the idea that gun films or films that feature guns or video games that feature guns influence mass shootings, this is such like a 90s Republican way of talking about it and sort of addressing it. And I feel like the idea that art can influence a mass murderer or a mass shooter, I feel like you're doing that 
piece of art a disservice. I really do think so. And I feel like if you are an individual that equates a film to a mass shooting, I feel like that is one of the most idiotic things you can ever believe in. All right, a, a movie about guns has never influenced a mass shooting. A rape joke has never influenced a person to rape. Again, this is just a this is one of the dumbest things to sort of equate to because it sort of delegitimizes and more importantly, it takes away from the importance of actually addressing the root issues and the root causes of what allows these things to happen, right? Like for me, like I mean, I'm not gonna lie, like I'm not a big fan of assault rifles. I mean, if 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 you're a fan of guns, sure. If, you know, again, I'm pro Second Amendment, but I also can admit that like there are parts of the Second Amendment where like, okay, this is a little this is a little too far. I'm not gonna lie, this is a little too far. So like when I see you know the assault rifles like you know being like when I see the assault rifle ban like ending in 2004 and then seeing a massive jump in mass shootings because of that, it's like, okay, that's part of the issue. That may not be the main issue, but that's definitely part of the issue. You know, when I see, you know, you know, seeing both sides of the aisle being corrupted, you know, by donations and whatnot, by, you know, various lobbyists and whatnot, that's also part of the issue as well. And not that's not just for gun violence, but that, that's just for the American political process in general. So that's part of the issue. I don't think, you know, a film about, you know, guns is what's causing these mass shootings to occur, right? There's far more, there's a underlying sort of threat to that. You know, there's an underlying reason as to why these individuals do what they do, right? Again, there's a reason why the majority of people that shoot other individuals are somehow related to that individual. You know, there's a reason why, you know, the people that are shot in these mass shootings are more often than not someone that they know. You know, I think that's that's a very, very important thing uh, to at least acknowledge because I feel like seeing, you know, gun movies being blamed for mass shootings, I feel like that's that's an easy way to sort of fix the problem, even though the problem is way more bigger than that. You know, it's like putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. You know, when you're when you end or when you sort of go after Hollywood for encouraging or for inciting violence through film, that's like the equivalent of putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound like it, or putting a Band-Aid on somebody being stabbed. Like it's not that's not going to help. It's not going to help whatsoever. So I don't know what, where Bill Maher is coming from in this. I really don't. I mean. I don't know, man. Bill Maher is very interesting because on one hand, like, I'm not going to lie, like, I really was into Bill Maher, like, as a high schooler, like, I'm not going to lie, I, I really was into Bill Maher, and I probably wouldn't have found comedy if it wasn't for Bill Maher, like, I really wouldn't, like, because through Bill Maher, like, I got recommended videos by Bill Burr, and I actually, like, found out what stand-up comedy actually was, you know, I mean, obviously, like, even before Bill Burr and before Bill Maher, like I was still like somewhat into stand-up comedy. I liked Frank Caliendo. I was really big into impressions. And I didn't know impressions were a part of stand-up comedy, but it was through Bill Maher and through, more importantly, Bill Burr that I actually found what stand-up comedy actually was, which is like, you know, premises, punchlines, setups, you know, being able to have great tags, being able to riff with the crowd, you know, all of that is sort of parlays into stand-up and that's what makes stand-up what it is today. And that's what makes stand-up a beautiful, beautiful piece of entertainment. I know I'm sort of segueing from this, but again, getting back into the discussion of it all, you know, to see Bill Maher blame gun movies for gun violence, I'm, I'm like, that's such a dumb thing to do. I mean, didn't this man graduate from Cornell? I mean, sh surely he should be more smarter than this, honestly. Like, this is like 
a very sort of 90s boomer Republican sort of, you know, like deep South Republican type of stuff that we're dealing with. It's like, that's not a way to really address the issue, really. I, I don't. But again, that's Bill Maher for you. You know, that's that's what you expect from Bill Maher. Uh, guns are not the issue. <laughs> guns are the issue. And that's because the Hollywood elite are trying to create guns to happen. <laughs> that's that's my that's my Bill Maher impression. Okay, new rule. <laughs> that that's my Bill Maher impression, by the way. Um, anyways, uh, getting back into this. Um, yeah, I mean, that's honestly, like, I don't, I don't like this. I don't like the precedent that this sets at all. Like, I don't like blaming art or blaming pieces of entertainment to as as a as a means to inspire mass shootings or as an excuse for these mass shootings to happen. Like, I don't like they. This happened with Columbine with with that video game uh, Doom. You know, this happens with you know the Dark Knight. For inspiring, you know, the the Aurora shooting and whatnot, and the Aurora, uh, you know, incident that occurred like eight, nine years ago, ten years ago, actually, this August marks ten years, or this July marks ten years since that happened. That's crazy. Uh, time flies, really. Uh, but anyways, you know, again, to think that entertainment causes mass tragedies is one of the dumbest things ever. Like, do you think art or do you think entertainment cause the twin towers to fall no it was the saudis it was the israelis like let's be honest here like again you know to to think that this is to be blamed for a gun violence if or for for mass shootings or for casualties is one of the dumbest things you can really believe in it really is you know so again you know when you think of movies you can only you should only view it as like means for entertainment you know, like that that's what it comes down to right like i don't know like if you watch top gun maverick you're not going to fly a plane to like some base in iraq and bomb that base right that's not going to happen you know what does what what happens you know who does that the us government and not your average person so again when i see movies like top gun maverick it's not going to cause violence like i truly don't think so there's some underlying reasons for what a, allows and what causes people to really lose their psyche to really lose their mental health and it's not gun movies it's not film it's not stand-up comedy it's not video games it's far more worse than that and honestly like if somebody said stand-up comedy caused gun violence on somebody else i'm sure bill maher would be like no that's not the case you should not view stand-up comedy like that so to view him to, for so for him to say gun movies or movies in general cause gun violence, I feel like that's a very sort of dumb thing. And I feel like if you replace gun movies with stand-up comedy, I feel like Bill Maher would actually be anti that position. He would actually rail against those individuals that believe in that. So for him to say this about movies, I feel like he's setting himself up for an ugly precedent where now if somebody says stand-up comedy causes gun violence, then he has to be on that side, unfortunately. You know, he can't be, you know, saying that stand-up comedy doesn't cause gun violence because then he just, because it sort of shows that he himself isn't linear or isn't consistent with his beliefs. So again, like, I feel like Bill Maher sort of needs to view this and be like, okay, like, this is dumb. Like this, blaming entertainment for this is dumb.
It is. It's dumb. It's dumb to think that mass casualties are are inspired or were inspired by pieces of entertainment. That's like one of the dumbest things you can ever believe in. So, again, that's my opinion, my overall thoughts and beliefs on the Belmar blaming gun movies for gun violence. And hopefully he can sort of rectify his position or clarify his position. Uh, I don't know. I'm not going to watch it if that happens. But, you know, new. I mean, okay, that's it for the Belmar impressions. That's it. If you want to see a good Belmar impression, uh, see Kyle Dunnigan on Joe Rogan. Uh, there's no God. Okay. <laughs> Just that impression is hilarious. I love it. Uh, all right. Let's get into our next uh, bit of discussion here. Um, news that's within the sports world, but it's overall something that I've been discussing with other players, uh, with other individuals. But Tiger Woods, and this is from Forbes, Tiger Woods becomes a billionaire. Uh, so Tiger Woods officially becomes a billionaire, no thanks to the Saudis. And that's in reference, and that's like the headline for the Forbes sort of write-up write on Tiger Woods becoming a billionaire. Apparently, like, there was this live tour. I thought it was the 54 tour, I'm not going to lie, when I first heard about it, because I thought that was the average age of golfers be, being accepted into the Saudi tournament. But there's this live tour happening in Saudi Arabia, where the Saudis, where the Saudi government is just throwing stacks of cash to any and if not every golfer, they threw stacks of cash to Phil Mickelson. I think Phil Mickelson is being given like 130 million to perform to perform at Saudi Arabia. Uh, Dustin Johnson was given like 115 million. I know Sergio Garcia is also performing or doing golf performing. He's yeah, he's doing a musical number. Yeah, he's doing uh, Hamilton uh, at Saudi Arabia. No, um, so Sergio Garcia is also scheduled to perform uh, to scheduled to play. Um, I think other players, Kevin Na on the PGA Tour is scheduled to play. Again, I'm, I, I just read this. All these players are perform, are scheduled to play uh, for Saudi Arabia. And they're all sort of defending their position. You know, they're sort of saying goodbye to the PGA Tour, playing for the Live Tour. And for some players, they're doing it for the cash grab. Some other players like Phil Mickelson, like Phil Mickelson are just doing it to pay off their gambling debt. Apparently, Phil Mickelson has over like $40 million in gambling debt, so he's trying to pay back that off with the money that he's making from the Saudi government. Uh, so this is a good write-up. Getting back into this Tiger Woods disc- discussion, this was a good write-up because now Tiger Woods is a billionaire, and he didn't accept the money from the Saudi Arabian government to do that, which is a very, very baller move. So let's get into it. Into that this article. Forbes now estimates his net worth to be at least $1 billion. Based on his lifetime earnings, making him one of just three known athlete billionaires. The others are NBA superstar LeBron James, who has leveraged his fame and fortune by taking equity stakes in a number of businesses, and Michael Jordan, who has hit 10 digits after he retired, thanks to a well-timed investment in the NBA Charlotte Hornets. Woods has reached that rarefied error, despite reportedly turning down a mind-blowingly enormous offer from the new Saudi-backed Live Tour, Live Golf Tour, a deal that Live CEO. Greg Norman told the Washington Post would have been in the high nine digits. Yet to the point, less than 10% of Wood's career earnings and net worth comes from golf winnings. The bulk of his fortune comes from enormous endorsement deals with more than a dozen brands, including Gatorade, Monster Energy, uh, TaylorMade, Rolex, Nike, with whom he assigned in 1996 and which remains his biggest backer. And I think when Tiger Woods, I think when he had his DOI or when he had his, you know, marital issues, I think nike dropped him for quite some time but then they picked him back up and honestly like tiger woods is this is good i mean i'm not gonna lie like to see a person that has been through a lot 
and to see him come back and become a billionaire, I kind of find it inspiring. I kind of do. Um, it, it really goes to show you that with hard work, with effort, and with a love for waitresses, uh, you too can be a billionaire. Uh, so I'm, I, for one, am happy for Tiger Woods for having a billion dollars because now he has a finite amount of resources to pull out any waitress he wants, which is, in his view, I think that'd be great for him. Um, honestly, like Tiger Woods is a, one of the best athletes to ever play. I think that's, I think that's case in point. I think that's, that's kind of what we're heading into. I think he's one of the best athletes to ever play. He really changed golf for the better for me. Like I still have no idea how people score golf. Like I really don't. All I know is nine holes, 18 holes, um, you know, a birdie, a bogey, an Eagle. I think Eagle is like when you do it like on first try or whatnot, but I have no idea what the scoring is for golf. It's a very sort of like a classist sport. I would say a very sort of elite sport where, you know, the barrier entry is so sort of geared for the upper middle class where you have to have a good amount of money and you have to have a good support system around you to really excel at the sport. Like it's one of those sports where like tennis, where I feel like you need to have the best equipment for it, right? Like if you go into tennis with like a $40 racket, I mean, you might do well here and there, but again, like if it's not restrung, if it's not you know, if it's not like one of the more premier rackets, if you don't have the proper training, if you don't, you know, take lessons, you know, if you don't have, you know, your parents paying for private lessons at these exclusive, you know, sort of tournaments or at these exclusive racket clubs. And this might be different from country to country, but I'm just speaking strictly in the US, then it's going to be very, very difficult for you to succeed. And for Tiger Woods, I feel like he was sort of an inspiration and in getting more sort of people that come from my background, my economic status to really care about golf. And for me, like I was a big Tiger Woods fan back in the day. Like I had no idea how golf was scored. Like I had no idea. But when I saw him at like the 2008 US Open, you know, and when I saw him like hit that shot where it was like sort of like curved and it just reaches like slowly reaches and, and just goes in. Like, that was, like, one of the best shots I've ever saw. Like, honestly, like, I think that was, like, on a Saturday or on a Sunday when that happened. I remember that, just watching that and, and just, like, sort of, like, being glued to it because, like, I never saw a person like that do, like, really do well at golf, but with that much sort of, like, authority and, like, bravado and that much sort of swagger attached to it. And that's what Tiger really brought for golf was, like, bringing, like, like like sort of like a different edge to it you know it wasn't just like this old white dude doing well in golf it was like somebody that was like that was sort of like a breath of fresh air you know like and i think he's like part part asian so maybe that's why like i was sort of attached to it like not saying that that's the only reason but you know when you like, go watch Chappelle's racial draft like that's a really good racial draft um and tiger woods is in it i mean Somebody plays Tiger Woods, obviously. Tiger Woods would never be in that uh, sketch. But go watch the racial draft. It's like one of the best Chappelle show sketches. Uh, but heading back into this sort of discussion here, to see him you know, make a billion dollars, I feel like, at the end of the day, it's inspirational. I'm not going to lie. Like when I see socialists being like, oh, we got to you know, tax the rich. We got to you know, eat the rich. So it's like, no, no, no. Like some people, like 
some people earn their money. Like, let's let's be honest here. Like, again, like there's certain parts of the left wing populist movement that I sort of agree with. Like, obviously, like having free healthcare is very very important. You know, ending these wars overseas is very very important. But like when I see like this eat the rich situation, especially when it comes to like athletes, it's like no, like these athletes made it through like meritocracy. Obviously, some people did take steroids and whatnot, and some people did do take HGH. And um, there are a lot of athletes right now that are on HGH and that are on the cycle. But still, if everybody's on the cycle, then that still makes it a meritocracy. And I feel like for some athletes, and just athletes in general, I feel like if they make their money by endorsement deals or through their success on the court, I feel like that in and of itself proves that in America, through hard work and effort and through the right regimen, the right regimen, I put that in quotes, I think it shows you that you can do well as well. You know, you can do well in those endeavors in that regard. And I feel like for people to be like eat the rich, especially when it comes to athletes, it's like, no, like they made their money through hard work, through dedication to, to their craft. And I feel like to simply like like take 30 or 40 or even like more than that away from them i mean because there are some people that do believe in that i feel like it sort of sets things in an ugly precedent where now people aren't really inspired to work as hard as that you know i feel like that's very very important to believe in i feel like you know instilling individuals that they too can have the confidence to make this amount of money this much amount of money through sports is something that we should actually applaud you know i mean there are a lot of billionaires uh, sons of billionaires that you know didn't get their money through hard work and effort who simply amassed their fortune by being the child of some billionaire and you know running away with it you know there's some individuals that are billionaires that don't deserve to be billionaires but tiger woods is not one of those individuals i mean tiger woods has been through a lot a lot i mean his dad really put him through the ringer i mean his dad was like his biggest critic you know, again, like think of all the issues and struggles that he's had. I mean, think of, you know, the substance abuse issues that he's had, you know, to, you know, his DUI four or five years ago and that happened with that mugshot of his, you know, to, you know, his, his marital issues, which I thought, in my opinion, were a little overblown. I'm not going to lie. Like looking back on, I'm like, this was really a, a national story. Like this was really a national story. Like if this, if this was any other sport, it would not be that big of an issue. Like, it really wouldn't. But because it's golf, because it's such a sort of gentleman-like sport, it, it got more media attention than it should have had. So, like, when I saw that, you know, marital issue, like, sort of de- debacle, I'm like, all right, like, I'm not justifying him cheating on his wife or whatnot, but, like, some people, I feel like they get a pass. Like, some people, some people. Like, if you're that successful, like, you have to... Um, I'll, I'll, I'll end there <laughs> in that discussion I'll sort of end it off that but for for Tiger Woods it's good like I'm, I for one I think this is good this is a good thing because again at the end of the day it's meritocracy at the end of the day it shows you that the best get rewarded you know when you see LeBron James amassing his fortune even though he's not as successful as Jordan he still has a winning, he still has won multiple championships when you think of Tom Brady getting his Fox deal, it shows you that at the end of the day, through hard work, through effort, and through dedication of your crowd, and through you know a great regimen and training uh, training regimen, and through a great diet, uh, I put that in quotes as well, uh, you too can amass that same fortune. I feel like that should only serve as an inspiration. It really should. 
because at, at the end of the day, like, what what is the alternative? You know, just sit around at home all day and, and you know, not work out, not do anything, not really put your mind and focus to what you truly love and enjoy and, and trying to make money out of it. What What is the alternative to this? You know, what is it? You know, like, what is the alternative to, to not working hard? Or what is the alternative to working hard? Like, what is it? Again, so I feel like Tiger Woods making this much amount of money. I feel like it's well-deserved because at the end of the day, like you have to understand like how much of inspiration this man was for a select group of people to really watch golf and to really enjoy golf. Again, like I don't think people realize this, but if Tiger Woods is not in a golf tournament, do you know how much money the PGA loses? Like the, like the PGA would cease to exist. Honestly, like I truly believe this. The PGA would literally be a shell of itself if it wasn't for Tiger Woods and the success and the success he had in the early 2000s. Honestly, like I truly believe that if Tiger Woods was not playing golf, golf would cease to exist as a product. I really do think so. It would be one of the lower tier lower watch sports. I mean, it already is one of like one of the lower watch sports, but still, if Tiger Woods was not in it, I do think that golf would just cease to exist like what tiger woods has meant for the sport of golf trans transcends that of anything we've seen before and anything we'll see afterwards and i feel like him getting a billion billion dollars and having a net worth of, of billion dollars is something that is a, is a good thing overall because it shows you that meritocracy and hard work and effort ultimately end up work out in the end i really do think so anyways i think that's it for the Tiger Woods discussion, uh, and I, I think that's it for me on that. Uh, let's get into our last topic for today before I get into my wiki pick. So Matt Walsh, if you guys don't know Matt Walsh, you probably know him from the YouTube algorithm. He's a part of the Daily Wire, has his own you know radio network pod, podcast show. I, I think podcast, the Matt Walsh podcast. Um, so he's basically like your sort of typical Republican. Uh, so Matt Walsh, released a documentary called What is Woman? And if you know anything about conservatives, you know, conservatives really like to sort of tease, you know, transgender people and whatnot. And they're like, they like to talk about transgender people like they're not women and whatnot, which that's their opinion. But he released What is Woman documentary. And I'm just getting this from Netflix, uh, from Wikipedia, Netflix, <laughs> like a Daily Wire production would be on Netflix. Uh, so I'm just getting this from Wikipedia, which states... What is a Woman is a 2022 American documentary featuring conservative political commentator Matt Walsh, directed by Justin Folk and released by The Daily Wire. It addresses gender and transgender issues with Walsh asking what is a woman and really questions to a variety of people. The film, re- the film received a divided attention. Some particularly, some particularly conservative and Christian com- commentators praised the documentary, while some others deemed it transphobic. All right, so this documentary, I watched it. I watched it, and my overall takeaway is I feel like Matt Walsh, by the way, this came out on June 1st, so I feel like that's kind of appropriate to say that because it was on Prime Month, so they announced it, and they released it, uh, they released the documentary on June 1st, so that kind of shows you that, okay, they're trying to go for it, they're trying to go for the trolling behavior to it, and after watching this documentary, and after seeing the questions that Matt, Matt Walsh asked, I gotta be honest with you. I think Matt Walsh is into trans women. I kind of think so. No one hates a particular group of people if they themselves aren't sexually attracted to the, to said group of people. 
Like you see that with Dr. Omar Johnson with white women, like you'll, he'll go out like, if you guys don't know Dr. Omar Johnson, then what are you doing? He's like one of the funniest dudes ever. But Dr. Omar Johnson will literally be like instigating black people for dating outside their race. Like he like, he was like prolific in that. Like he was like, honestly, like he, Dr. Omar Johnson, he doesn't have like an actual Dr. Red, but it's still... Dr. Umar Johnson would routinely go after black men for dating outside their race. Honestly, like, he would. And then last week, it comes come to find out, Dr. Umar Johnson was literally like at the Oak Tree Mall or Cherry Cherry Tree Mall in New Jersey, New New York, or whatnot. Literally like handing out numbers to like white women. Like honestly, like that, and that's like what it is. Like again, like for me, like when I see this, it's like do what you want to do. Like if you find somebody that you like outside of your race, outside of your religion, outside of your bubble, outside your gender, whatever it is do you you do you you know you find what you love you know do what what makes you happy at the end of the day so when i see like you know matt walsh hating this this like trans people this much i'm like okay like he must be into them like he must be like nobody's this fixated on a group of people if they themselves aren't into said group of people like apparently like the headmaster of like the kkk was like having like a mistress who was black right like again like again this is not like outside of the norm like this is kind of what it is like with with these types of with these types of individuals so like when i when i see this and when i when i heard this documentary come out i'm like okay like this is i get where they're coming from like i i feel like when i saw this documentary i'm like okay this is old this is old news like this is something that i would expect five six years ago and the political discourse like this this topic is so tiring to discuss honestly like when people are like are trans women women or, or whatnot i feel like that's such like a like a britain sort of way of viewing this but i feel like here in america i feel like the the conversation has run its course so dry because at the end of the day it's like the same discussion each and every time it's like oh should trans women be in women's bathrooms or should trans men be in men's bathrooms or what will happen if men are in women's bathrooms you know will that cause more rapes and whatnot it's like i mean do we all not go to the same bathroom at home like if you're with your family like if you're with obviously it's like a i know it's like a only like a one toilet situation at home but still i mean don't we all just use the same bathroom at home like why is it such a big deal like i don't really get it like honestly like, i don't like when people are so this gung-ho on like trans people and whatnot it's like you know we actually have like real problems to discuss right like you know like we're having a genocide in yemen right you know like you know that the average person is rationing their insulin or can't afford insulin maybe not rationing their insulin i mean there are individuals that do ration their, their insulin but you know like the average person can't afford insulin right you know the average gas price is like over five dollars right like there are more important things to discuss about than trans people like honestly and there's such like a fringe group it's like so dis like like just to, to, to for for matt walsh to discuss them as if they're like running amok is like such a weird thing to sort of sort of say publicly out loud like honestly like like how can you watch this documentary and, and like look at matt walsh and be like oh yeah this person is not a creep like when i look at matt walsh i'm not gonna lie like when i look at matt walsh with his like big beard and like his big glasses i'm like oh like you're basically just like like an incel like i'm like when i look at that i'm like oh you're just like an, like an incel like i'm sure sure you're married or whatnot but i'm sure you're married i'm, I'm assuming he's married uh but 
like when I look at him, I'm like, oh yeah, you look like every dude I imagine that's like on like Reddit. <laughs> like, and when I mean like Reddit, I don't mean like certain like like cooler, more hip subreddits. I'm like like the like the for you page on Reddit. Like when you go to Reddit and when you go to the front page of Reddit, like I imagine like all the commentators look like some variation of Matt Walsh, like some variation of Matt Walsh. So when I see this and when I see, you know, Matt Walsh, you know, going after trans women and for being in women's sports, it's like, aren't conservatives at one point or another against women playing sports? Like, remember back in the day, like back in the 50s, back in the 60s, like they were against Title IX and whatnot. So when I hear Matt Walsh being like, can you imagine trans women playing women's sports? It's like, I can imagine it. In fact, I kind of support it. Like, if that makes women's sports more enjoyable to watch, by all means, I'm for trans women in women's sports. Like, if it means seeing women's sports be more enjoyable... I, w- I would love it, honestly. Like, imagine if LeBron James played in the WNBA. I would love to watch it. Like, he would pull Will Chamberlain numbers. Like, remember when Will Chamberlain scored 100? Like, that will be LeBron James on the daily. Like, I would love to see LeBron James playing the WNBA just for the fun, ups- pure absurdity of it, honestly. Like, I would love to see trans women in sports, honestly, because I, I, love- I just want to make women's sports more enjoyable to watch. That's all I want. I want women's sports to be more enjoyable. You know, like, honestly. Uh, so when I see, you know, Matt Walsh go after trans women in sports, it's like 40, 50 years ago, you were against, conservatives more often than not were against women playing sports, right? So to see them be like, can you imagine trans women playing women's sports? It's like, can you not prove yourself to be more hypocritical in that regard? Like, honestly. And that's what it really goes to show you with conservatism is that all conservatism is, is liberalism on the speed limit. Right, I'm sure Matt Walsh and I'm sure a bunch of other conservatives are in favor of gay marriage. 10, 15 years ago, they weren't. So to see this happen and to see you know conservatives just turn into liberals is, is quite interesting to see. And I feel like in 10, 15 years, you're going to see a lot of conservatives support trans people. And documentaries, documentaries like this will age extremely bad. It's already aged really bad, by the way. I mean, like, let's let's not get ahead of ourselves like this documentary. I watched it. It's not good. I'm going to be quite honest with you. This this documentary really proves that at the end of the day, conservatism is just liberalism on a speed limit. And when you see, you know, Tommy Lahren supporting pro-choice and Tommy Lahren supporting Caitlyn Jenner to be the Republican, you know, governor of California, at the end of the day, it really goes to show you that a bunch of these Republicans are more more or less liberal. That's what it boils down to. You know, so it's interesting to see. It really is. And vice versa. When you think of liberals, I mean, more often liberals, more often than not, when it comes to fiscal issues, are conservative. I mean, when you think of, you know, Nancy Pelosi or Joe Manchin or that of, say, Kristen Cinema. I mean, when Nancy Pelosi ripped her paper, remember that moment when, like, Trump was uh, doing the State of the Union address? And Nancy Pelosi, like, ripped her paper, like, when she was standing up. Apparently on that same day, like, she voted for funding on the border wall. So it's like, if, if that doesn't show you the sheer hypocrisy in both parties, then nothing will. So, again, this What is a Woman documentary, I thought it was hilarious to watch. Because at the end of the day, to see a man care this much about trans women is one of the most hilarious things ever. It really is. And to see, like, a person be like, we can't have trans women in women's sports, it's like... 
I want trans women win sports. You know, I want to see women get the ish knocked out of them. You know, I want to see that. You know, I want to see women's sports be more enjoyable to watch. You know, like, honestly, I want to see women's sports to be competitive and fun and engaging. And when you watch the WNBA, it's none of those things at all. So, <laughs> and I'm speaking, I'm strictly speaking WNBA, nothing else. Just, I just want to see actual basketball players compete in the WNBA. Like I really do with like a 28.5 ball with like a, like a smaller foot rim. Like I want to see all of that. Like I really do for other sports, maybe not so much because for basketball, it's like one of those sports where I'm like, okay, I want to see just women just get like destroyed on court. I really do just for basketball alone. Maybe for other sports, not so much, but for, for basketball, yes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, that's my overall thoughts and opinions on the Matt Walsh documentary. Very, very sort of on par with what the overall message is with, with Republicans in this regard and this sort of topic. Uh, so yeah, Matt Walsh, What is a Woman documentary. I give it two thumbs up. Uh, two thumbs up because uh, it's so hilarious to watch. It really is. It's hilarious to watch Matt Walsh care this much about trans women. It really is. Uh, usually just people are like, okay, that's kind of weird or that's wrong or whatnot, or okay, whatever they they can be in that sport or whatnot. And they just think about something else. But for Matt Walsh, he really, really cares about trans women. Honestly, I feel like Matt Walsh is like the biggest supporter of trans people. If, if he devotes this much time and energy for a documentary purely on the culture war, he himself must be the most ardent supporter of trans people. Honestly, like, I really do think so. Uh, so yeah, Matt Walsh, what is a woman? Um, a documentary. All right, let's get into my weekly pick, shall we? So each and every week, I recommend a book, a piece of art, a film that I really enjoy that I think you guys will enjoy as well. This week, I'll be recommending Damien Chazelle's Whiplash. I know this is a film that's a, a quite old. I know it's like nine years old, um, but still, it is eight years old, actually, eight years old. It's an eight-year-old film, but I, for one, enjoy this film. It's one of my favorite films of all time. And if you guys don't know the film, you should by now. It's eight years old. But if you guys don't know, it stars Miles Teller playing Andrew Neiman, this 19-year-old drum prodigy who gets tested limits by Terrence Fletcher, his professor, or not professor, his teacher uh, at Schaefer Conservatory, played by J.K. Simmons. And trials and tribulations sort of ensue after that. And it basically documents that with the overall mind games that Terrence Fletcher would play on Andrew Neiman. And to see the back and forth between Miles Teller's character and J.K. Simmons' character really makes this movie stand out for me. Again, it details this this drumming prodigy being tested to the limits by J.K. Simmons' character. And the overall mental games and the mental chess that happens between these two individuals is something that is some of the best sort of mental struggles I've ever seen put on camera, really. The, the mental war that occurs between Terrence Fletcher and Andrew Neiman in this film is some of the best things I've ever seen in cinema. And the rushing and dragging scene, the rushing or dragging scene was probably my favorite scene where like each and every time when J.K. Simmons would ask Miles Teller, are you rushing or dragging? And he would just count to one, two, three, four and just slap him consistently, consistently until he knew like whether he was rushing or dragging. It really goes to show you that it really goes to show you the war between these two individuals, but it also goes to show you just the intensity that these two actors really put in their performances. Again, this is probably one of my favorites, 
performances by Miles Teller. Probably my favorite performance by Miles Teller. And, you know, when you see the TikTok obsession over him, it's like, this film should be in the same vein as, like, how people on TikTok are obsessing over his role on Top Gun Maverick. Like, I get it. You know, he does a little dance. You know, he does it, you know, in a beach. But for Whiplash, like, this should be viewed as his best performance thus far in his career. And honestly, it is. So, again, the ending of the film... I don't know if I should spoil it or not. Again, it's eight years old. If you're watching this, you probably already know the ending of the film. But the ending of the film where sort of where J.K. Simmons sort of, you know, mother bleeps, mother fucks him by playing him, by making him play a different note or making him play a different song, him rushing back off stage to his parents or to his father, coming back on stage and just playing Caravan. And to see him do that drum solo, cue the uh, bass player on time, make the whole band follow his tempo, follow his groove, and to see it sort of end with Miles Teller's character going through the same sort of fate as Charlie Parker's character, which making him thus making him one of the best drawing players of all time. That's sort of what I took away from the ending. It really goes to show you that this film is one of the best films of the 2010s. It really is. I really consider this film a masterpiece, and it's probably my favorite film of Damien Chazelle that he's released. I'd ha- I've watched First Man and I've watched La La Land, but honestly, I would say that this film is his magnum opus so far in his career, and I'm excited to see his next directorial film with Babylon. So Miles, uh, Damien Chazelle, I almost said Miles Teller, Damien Chazelle's Whiplash, a great film. Go watch it if you haven't already. I know, you know, TikTok is discussing Miles Teller and Top Gun, and I know, you know, people are interested for Babylon with Margot Robbie and Brad Pitt, but this film, I think this is his second film that he directed. This is one of the best films of of the 2010s, and if you have a love for anything, whether it's music or, for me, stand-up comedy, if you have a love for anything, whether it's, you know, whether it's medicine or, you know, coding and if you really devote that much time and energy to energy to what you love and if you want to be one of the best to ever do it i feel like you can take a lot of, a lot from this film so damien chazelle's whiplash that will be that will be my wiki pick anyways guys i think that'll be it for me so guys thank you so much for watching thank you so much for listening make sure you guys like subscribe and click the bell icon for notifications down below make sure you subscribe to both my podcast channel my, my podcast clips channel Make sure you follow me on Instagram and Twitter at AJ Tucker, A-J-A-Y-T-H-A-K-K-A-R underscore the end. And make sure you spread the word on WhatsApp. And I think that's very, very important to spread it through word of mouth to get people invested, interested in this podcast. I think that'd be great. The more people that, you know, sort of sort of put their opinions out there. And if you have an opinion on any of these, on, on any of the topics, whether it's Matt Walsh, whether it's um tiger woods becoming a billionaire whether it's my overall opinions on that of bill maher blaming gun movies for gun violence or that of the boss open you know leave your comments down below on, on that as well i want to hear your thoughts and opinions any questions you know comments cons- concerns down below leave them down below and that's about it for me today i think that's that that'll be it for me today so guys thanks so much for watching thank you so much, thank you so much for listening and i'll see you guys on thursday we'll talk about things that are happening in our political and societal realm but also things that are happening in tennis as well i know there are two tournaments happening simultaneously so i'll be on the lookout for those as well all right guys catch you on tuesday peace thursday catch you on thursday peace see y'all